We are continuing our journey through Matthew's gospel, specifically in Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I think I blew a gasket on that one song, so got to clear my throat here a little bit. <clears throat> Sing a little, hit that high note just a little too high, so. <clears throat> uh, as we continue to journey through this uh, series of stories about controversy surrounding Jesus, we find out that it has been really quite a day for Jesus. In a lot of ways, I would liken it to an election season where you have pundits waiting to pounce on how you answer hard questions, seeking to exploit every misstatement, every off-the-cuff remark that you might make. As we have looked over the last several weeks, they tried to get Jesus into civic trouble by asking him a question about whether it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar. And then they tried to get him into theological trouble by asking him a ridiculous question about how could the resurrection possibly be true. We've noted that we oftentimes overlook uh, the brilliance and the absolute intelligence of Jesus. If he was God, he has all knowledge. And yet we think about his love or we think about his compassion we think about um, his, his power demonstrated through his miracles. And yet through these questions that are antagonistically asked to him, we see his, his brilliance. But yet today we come to a third instance where it is not a friendly crowd asking him questions and you have to go, what will happen now? I mean, you know, it's been a long day. They've been asking him questions. Is he tired? Because when, when I'm tired, I don't answer well. Um, I don't do as good. Is, will he slip up? Will he get angry at their insolence? Let's see how the story unfolds. We'll begin in chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 34 of chapter 22. You'll find that on page uh, 700 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Here's what the scripture says. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. With that very simple verse, we run full circle back to the original group of turkeys that created this whole circus. It was the Pharisees that started it. And you'll remember, the Pharisees were the ones that asked the question about taxes, and Jesus stopped them in their tracks. And like they get defeated, and they're kind of licking their wounds. And then we find out that there's not a lot of love between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees come and they ask Jesus the question about the resurrection. When they fail as well, because of the kind of inter-varsity um, uh, conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you have to imagine that they kind of had some perverse pleasure and breathed a sigh of relief when the Sadducees got shut up as well. You know, whew, you know we don't like the Sadducees. Jesus silenced them, and the word for silence is he muzzled them. Like they couldn't have said something if they wanted to. It, and it, it says that in the passage. Jesus answered them and they didn't have anything to say. Jesus muzzled them. You can see the Pharisees over in the back, you know, high-fiving each other going, yes. <clears throat> the problem is that the Pharisees and Sadducees, as much as they didn't like each other, they disliked Jesus more and so they conspire again to ask him another question trying to trap him. So the story continues. They're not just gathering. They're not just having a convention, a Pharisees and Sadducees party. They are intending to trap him. And we see that in verses 35 and 36. It says, And one of them, 
an expert in the law asked a question to test Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? In the very first encounter, we saw that it was not the Pharisees who came to ask Jesus a question. They sent one of their disciples. Perhaps they would have been too recognizable with their fancy robes and phylacteries and uh, tattoos or whatever it was that they had, that they sent their disciples in their stead. But now they pick an exemplary figure, a lawyer and, uh, what the scripture says, an expert in the law to ask him a question in trying to entangle him in what is essentially an intra-Jewish debate. How do we rank God's word? Which of the 613 commands that they had formulated, which one was most important? And friends, this is an absolute loser of a question because there's little special groups that think this law is most important, this law is most important, this law is most important. So whatever Jesus picks, he's not going to make some folks happy. Now we have a bunch of teachers here. You saw them stand just a few minutes ago. And so when we talk about ranking stuff, this is what we used to do on those little Scantron forms. You know, you fill A for this, fill B for that. That's not simply what they're asking. They're not simply asking a question about setting historical events in their chronological order uh, like this. Put in order uh, the uh, occurrence of each of these events, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the War of 1812. They're not just asking a trivia pursuit question. They're asking him to rank God's word in, in um, in the equation of value. What has more value? Because they can't all be equivalent. There has to be some kind of hierarchy. Which one is most important? Here's one of the things that's very interesting. In Matthew's gospel, anytime he's called teacher, teachers, you'll appreciate this, anytime Jesus is called teacher, it's insincere. I mean, it's somebody who's up to something. So anytime there's a respectful form of address, rabbi, because they don't recognize him as such. He doesn't have the right pedigree. They don't know who, what his lineage is, and so he's not qualified to teach. And so it is kind of like, you know, oh, superlative, most grateful and wonderful, wise teacher. They don't believe it. Yet here, there's, there's a little difference to this episode. Um, this story of the um, Pharisees trying to trap Jesus is repeated uh, not only in Matthew, but also in Mark and in Luke. And when we look at Mark's recounting of the story, the lawyer asks Jesus a question There's just something very interesting that seems to be happening. Look at the passage uh, here. It says in Mark 12, 32, that Jesus answers, and then the scribe, the lawyer, said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said. So the lawyer is commending Jesus' response, to which Jesus replies to him in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared to question him any longer. Uh, For the first time in history, there is a a positive um, reaction to a lawyer. And it's it's there in the scriptures. Um, uh, See, we don't don't invite lawyers to church the same way we invite teachers to church. Um, But there is this certainly very deferential and respectful answer of this lawyer. We know that his intention is to trap Jesus, yet when Jesus answers, he's so impressed with Jesus' depth of biblical scholarship and the way that he summarizes things that he says, you're right. And Jesus says, I know you're trying to trap me, but even despite that, you're not, you're not far. You're, you're, getting something, you're getting something right. 
he, he genuinely commends Jesus' answer. Jesus genuinely responds to him in a very kind fashion. Well, Jesus is not, uh, he doesn't play around. He gives a very straightforward answer. But being his own man, they asked him for one. What does he do? He gives them two. And they're intertwined. They go together and they are important together. Yeah, here's the thing. When, when we think about uh, the, a Jewish religious leader asking Jesus a question about which command is most important, isn't there a sense in which we would all kind of think he's going to choose one of the top ten? You know, David Letterman, uh, I guess, uh, was back there. He had a top ten list of commandments that we know as the Ten Commandments. And Jesus didn't pick one of those. He didn't pick, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. So what do we, what do, we do with that? Isn't that what we would expect him to do? So as we look a little closer at what he said, I think we'll see some very interesting things. In verse 37, Jesus gives the very first part of his reply, and here's what he says. In response to the question, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. How are we to understand this concept of loving God? It's very easy to say that you love God. It's a very different thing to actually be able to legitimately claim love for God. So how do we understand this? <clears throat> Three things, two, two statements, and then one kind of summary statement. The very first thing is, as we look at this, Jesus uses different words. He uses different words. He says we are to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. Now, a Hebraic way of thinking through the, the, these words and the, way, the nature of human reality would be different than, than us. Typically, you know, you all... Um, uh, I think uh, Chris Hafner, a very long time ago, wrote a note to Miss Kelly, and it said, I heart you. We all know what that means, you know? And she said, um, call me later. You know, I don't know what she said. <laughs> nice try, buddy. Um, we know what that means. When we, when we think of the heart, we think of emotions. But for a Hebrew, uh, the, the heart was not necessarily the, the seat of your emotions. It was the center of your being, maybe what we would call our soul today. So for them, uh, he says, heart, that's one of these different words. He says, soul, that life force. The soul was really more the seat of your emotions in a Hebraic way of understanding. And your mind was kind of the same thing. It was your might, your thinking and planning processes. And so Jesus uses different words, but it's important for us here because um, I'm not good at math, uh, but I like geometry. And so uh, it's important here to get a little, uh, little geometry going here. These are very distinct concepts, but they overlap. I mean, how do you divide the immaterial part of human beings? You know, and there's a huge debate whether we're made up of two parts. Are we mind and body? Are we mind, soul, body? How does all that work? We're not going to answer that question here today. But in Jesus' answer, he's saying there are these different faculties that make you up, but they overlap. I mean, they are what make you that, that shaded part in the middle is what makes you you. And it's part of your heart, it's part of your soul, it's part of your mind, but they unite to make you a person. And Jesus is saying, everything that it is that makes you you, love God with that. So love him with your wallet, love him with your mind, love him with your automobile, love him with your vocation, love him with everything that makes you who you are. But then Jesus doesn't just use different words, he also uses the same word. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind. Now, you don't need to understand Hebrew to understand what the word all means. It means all. That, that's it. It's very simple. He's just saying, 
everything you have. And this is an old command. This is not a new thing. Deuteronomy 6, 5, a famous Old Testament passage called the Shema that every Jewish person would pray every morning. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the point here, when we talk about understanding love for God, love for God is a challenge to wholehearted devotion to God with every atom of your being. There's not a part of your life that doesn't owe its origin and its sustenance to God. And he says, love me with everything that you've got. If I am the supreme and most ultimate being who has both created you and for you who are believers has redeemed you, we owe him wholehearted devotion. In verse 38, Jesus makes this first command especially emphatic. He says, after, after the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, uh, and mind, this is the greatest and most important command. Anybody need me to explain that to them? This is the greatest and most important command. Jesus puts this first command in emphatic position. He says, We're gonna, we can talk about 613 commands if you want to, but this will always be number one. And any time it is not number one, your priorities have gotten out of line. <clears throat> in verse 39, Jesus very briefly talks about loving others. And uh, when we talk about loving others, oftentimes talk is cheap. So how do we understand what Jesus says? Look at what he says in verse 39, he says, the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think there has to be a little bit of satire here because this command to love your neighbor has manifold implications. And Jesus says, hey, the second one is uh, love your neighbor as yourself, period. Can I get a little bit of explanation for what that means? Who is my neighbor? Well, they tried that. That didn't work out too well for the Jewish leaders again. <clears throat> Here's the challenge. We just read about love for God, and he says we are to love God with the totality of our being, with our heart, with our soul, with our mind. Here's the thing that's really interesting. When we think about how we have just been commanded to love God, that sounds kind of strangely internal. My heart, my soul, wherever my soul is, and my mind. Not my hands, not my actions, not my talents. My heart, my soul, my mind. It's a focus our love for God is a focus on our inner dispositions, our thoughts, our motivations, our desires. We are to love God with those kinds of things. But when our motivations, our desires, our, our, all of those things are focused on God, they have to find an outlet. They have to find an outlet. And when God here gives the command to love others, He is providing an energetic outlet for the love of God to be manifested. I love this because, like, I can't read people's hearts, and nor do I want to. I would quit, probably, if I could do that. That would be terrible to actually know what people, to know their minds or to know their hearts, because the Bible says we are sick with sin. Like, we can dress up and, and look good at church and be lying on the outside and be filthy rotten on the inside, and that's a problem that affects everyone. But I love this because he says, how do you demonstrate love for God? And here's, here's what's really sad. Non-church people would probably get the answer right before church people would. Because church people say, oh, I demonstrate love for God by going to church. You know, hey, we just passed the play. I demonstrate love for God by giving my money. Uh, I demonstrate love for God by having a perfect attendance pin for Sunday school. Now, are these bad things? 
All right, like one person said no. These are good things. Like we think going to church and like giving of your money are all good. But what Jesus is saying here is that love for God, the most natural expression for love for God is love for others. So like you're playing the shell game of talking about love for God if you're not doing things for other people. Like if you are a spiritual consumer and not a spiritual partner, like you've changed the rules to the game. And like we have enabled people to call themselves Christians who are Christians in name only because they don't do anything. And so Jesus is calling us for a very sober evaluation of whether what we are doing matches up with what we say we are believing. Because to believe something and not do it is not belief biblically defined. It's a radical commitment that he's calling us for. Love for God is so much more than just bare belief. Love for God means you show up consistently. Because when you don't show up consistently, how are you serving? If you don't show up for church consistently, how do you serve your brothers in Christ regularly? That's one of the reasons I show up is I both have the opportunity to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ and be served by my brothers and sisters in Christ. If I sleep in today, that doesn't happen. I don't serve anybody and nobody serves me. That's one of the reasons why we gather together. Just as the command to love God was rooted in the Old Testament, the command to love our neighbors is not a new thing. We tend to think, you know, Old Testament, they don't love their neighbors. New Testament, now we love our neighbors. There's a problem with that. It's called Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says this, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love for neighbor from table of contents to the maps is the consistent theme of the Bible. Every book is about this. It just seemed to get lost in the shuffle. Now, it's important to note when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, there is no implicit secret Bible code or anything of the sort that commands you to love yourself. In our narcissistic, selfie-obsessed age, you know, everybody wants to know everything that I'm doing on Facebook. There is no command to love yourself. So don't go, all right, hey, here's my take-home today. I'm going to love myself really good because the Bible tells me to. No, the Bible assumes that you're going to love yourself because when you're tired, what do you do? You take a nap. When you're hungry, what do you do? You feed yourself, probably not something that's good for you, but you still, you're going to satisfy your hunger. You're going to do something to satisfy whatever drives and desires you have. It is an assumption that if you're going to continue to exist, you are going to love yourself by caring for yourself. And so not a command to love yourself, it is a command to love your neighbors as you naturally take care of yourself. If you like it, then somebody who doesn't have the opportunity to like what you like probably would like it too. Hey, I, I want to go to a college football game. I bet you there's a lot of kids who don't have a dad that could take them to a college football game that would love to go. If you would like it, then chances are there would be someone who would like to be treated the same way you want to treat yourself. I love, again, how brief the command is. He just says, love your neighbor, period. But we must not make the mistake that the Jews did. They, they assumed that love for your neighbor meant we can just love the people that we already love, the people who look like us, who act like us, share the same values as us, go to the same synagogue as us, and dress like us. Here's, here's the challenge. That's not love. That's favoritism. Favoritism is a form of love, isn't it? It, it is a very egocentric form of loving people who look like you, act like you, share the same values as you do, and really all you're doing is patting yourself on your back by loving people who are just like you. And so here's the thing. God's love is indiscriminate. That's a really 
That's a bad word, we think, sometimes. But here, here's the question. <clears throat> Are Christians the only people that get to have oxygen today? Nope. Listen, there are people who uh, probably worship a false god who even right now are planning ways to uh, do acts of destruction in our United States and God gives them oxygen too. Because he's good and he's gracious and says that he's patient, giving them the opportunity to hear the gospel. The blood that is pumping through your veins, you don't show up to church to get like a recharge to your circulatory system. You know, it's not like you plug in and, oh great, my blood will pump for another week. There are people bowing to pagan altars or perhaps no altar at all whose blood will continue to circulate through their veins. Why? Because ultimately, God loves them. And it says if the, he knows the number of sparrows that fall to the ground, he knows what people ultimately worship, and he causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He, he loves. And in the same sense, we are to extend our love as wide as God extends his. The challenge is it's really easy for us to talk about love. So I'm going to give you a statement, and then I'm going to read a quote to you. And the statement is this. When we talk about loving our neighbor, that is a very easy idea, but a very costly action. As a matter of fact, I would probably assert that we like the idea of loving our neighbor much more than we like the sacrifice of loving our neighbor. It's messy. It's going to cost you money, time, convenience, and comfort. Listen to this quote. I don't even know who did it, but these are, these are not my words. It sounds like it's from old school just because of the syntax, but listen to it. He who would do good to another must do it in minute particularity. General good is the plea of the scoundrel, hypocrite, and the flatterer. Everybody can love their neighbor in general. But if I say, you know, Gil's got a sling on his arm. I'm going to love Gil this week by cutting his grass. And I can say that because he doesn't have grass to cut. So, Gil, I'm your man this week. I will cut your grass, bro. Um, but see, that's like, that's us. That is scoundrel to go, Gil, man, hey, can I do this for you? And he's like, I don't have grass. So, All right, man, just offering. You know? <laughs> what in the world? He's saying that when you say that you're going to love, you have to do it with minute particularity. So, you know, so you, you, somebody comes walking into your cubicle this week or into your living room or wherever it is, and they say, hey, man, what are you doing? Man, I'm just doing good and loving people. Really? Who? Oh, people. Name and address, please. <laughs> oh, I'm just loving people. How? Who? When? Because it's really easy to love people in general with despising people in particular. That's a problem. So Jesus didn't quote the Old Testament, he, he, or he didn't quote the Ten Commandments. Is he now in some way contradicting the Old Testament? Certainly not. We've just said that the command to love God and love neighbor come from Deuteronomy 6, from Leviticus 19, but in verse 40 of our chapter, Jesus makes a statement that is completely unique to the Gospel of Matthew. Look at what he says. He says, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. What he does here is something that's really ingenious. He provides both a good analogy and a perfect summary. Here's the good analogy. The tendency for us when we hear of all the commands in the Bible, you know, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, flee from this, love this. The tendency is for us to think about uh, this guy here, that the Old Testament, the Bible, is like a jumble of wires and 
There's like five people in the world that know what to do with wires. Wires freak me out because they have electricity and it can kill you. So pay someone to mess with wires. Anytime you have anything with wires, don't do it yourself because you'll end up dead. It's not good. You know, and so we tend to think of, uh, we tend to think of the Bible as this ultra complex, you know, like big blue um, or deep blue, whatever the big computer is. And like when we open up the book, it's like we're cracking open the computer and we can see all the blinking cards and wires and connections. We're like, oh my goodness, put the cover back on. I don't want to see it. I just, I'm glad that it works. I don't know how it works. And we think that the, the Bible is like intensely and deeply confusing and a jumbled mess of stuff. Jesus changes the analogy. He says, it's not, it's not that. It's not a jumbled mess of wires that you don't really understand how it works. It is two pegs that the entire tapestry of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, hang upon. That's beautiful to think about. What he does is he says, listen, you as humans will always overcomplicate what God has made really simple. You've turned it into 613 rules that you can't even figure out which one is most important? You want to fight about it and have a you know, Jewish debate club over which is more important. And he says, the, I've got two pegs. Jesus simplifies, he deepens, and he focuses the Bible to say, hey, I don't care how many times you've read the Bible through. If you're not loving God and loving neighbor, then I don't care how much you've read the Bible. He says, if you're not loving God and loving neighbor... I don't care how long you've been coming to this church. If you're not loving God and loving neighbor, I don't care how consistent you have been or who your grandpa was or any of this stuff because if you miss these two pegs, you're not hanging on anything. You have no substance to hang the tapestry of your own life upon. It's like putting a picture on the wall with nothing to hold it. What happens the minute you remove your hand? It crashes to the ground. So not only does he provide a good analogy that I think helps to simplify and focus the Bible, he provides with these two commands a perfect summary. And so instead of quoting the Ten Commandments, what he does is he summarizes them. We'll see this here on the screen here in just a second. He talks about love for God and love for others, which is essentially a perfect summary of the Ten Commandments. We have four commands that regulate our love for God. You know, don't have any other gods before me, no idols, don't take my name in vain which really is not an issue of cussing. I know we think that is. It's, an, it's, it's the issue of like taking the Lord's name and calling yourself a Christian and not living like it. So the challenge is there's a lot of us taking the, God's name in vain who would never say a cuss word. And we think we're actually holier because we've disciplined our mouth when we, we're not actually living out biblical values. That was free. Uh, that didn't have anything to do with the sermon. And then he talks about <laughs> remembering the Sabbath. If God needed a day of rest... Don't be so upset that you need one too. And then I find this fascinating. Four laws to regulate how we relate to God. I would think there would be a lot more laws. It'd be a little more complicated than that. He says four. But yet when it comes to relating with other people just like us who put our pants on one leg at a time, we have six rules. (laughs) He says, honor your parents. That should kind of go without saying, right, parents? Like we brought them into this world. Like we feed them. We've changed their diapers. We've seen all kinds of stuff come out of every part of their body, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, whatever. You're not going to honor me? What's up with that? Don't murder? That seems to be self-evident. You know, that's not good. Don't commit adultery. No stealing, no lying, no coveting. 
Jesus is here provided with these two pegs, a perfect summary of everything that God intended in the Ten Commandments. He just does it in a simpler fashion. The point is this, friends. Love for God should be our fuel for loving others. Listen, if my goal in loving Gil is because Gil's good, what do I do when I find out that he's a Detroit Lions fan? Man, what am I doing serving a Detroit Lions? The, the point is this, <clears throat> if your motivation for doing good to others is because of people or their needs, you'll run out of gas in your tank really quickly. Because like, teachers, let me use you as an illustration. I know you came as our guest. You didn't come for me to point you out, so I'm, I'm sorry for that. But do you think that your students appreciate your hard work? Do you think they realize the sacrifices that you have made before school has even started? It's not like, you know, you just show up to school and here's my lesson plan. <laughs> you know, it doesn't like, it would be awesome if like you could just say, God, I, I tithe today. I need a lesson plan for the week. And then you walk out and it's like sitting on your dashboard. It would be incredible. But they're not going to realize the depth of your sacrifices. They're not going to understand your motivation. They're going to think you're mean when what you're trying to do is pr- preserve the integrity of the learning environment. You know, and, and Johnny's acting up and you need Johnny to settle down. Well, Johnny now thinks you're a mean head or whatever it is, and all you're trying to do is provide a, conduct, a conductive learning environment for everybody. If you're motivated by people, people will give you a reason to be completely unmotivated. They can be mean. As a matter of fact, it's even been said that church life is really great if it wasn't for the difficult people. You know, the, the challenge is, I'm the difficult people. And the good news is, all y'all are too. At some point, you might not be right now. Oh, let's just shake you up just a little bit. See how difficult you can get. You're going to be difficult. You're going to be willful. You're going to want what you want. And who in the world said we're going to have blue carpet in here? Churches fight over that kind of stuff. Who said brown paint on the walls? Who said our name's going to be Northside? I didn't get to vote on that. Uh, You're going to be willful. And you'll run out of gas really quick if people are your motivation. But that that's not the point. The point is that our love for God is an inexhaustible fuel for our love for people. So what are we to do in conclusion? I give you three, uh, three kind of summary statements here. They're not written out. There's no fill in the blank. Listen, and then you can put it in your own words probably in a much better way than I could. What are we to do? Number one, we need to realize how absolutely God-centered Jesus' answer was. The first and greatest command is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Realize how absolutely God-centered Jesus was and realize how much you are not. Listen, you guys are in church on Sunday, okay? Like, you get it. Has there perhaps been a second or two that you have not thought about your devotion to God this week? I mean, the challenge is, how many hours have gone through have you gone through this week without considering your obligation to God? The, the, the truth is, we could probably flip the question around and say, how many times were you conscious of your obligation to God? And it would be measured in seconds, not minutes, certainly not hours, certainly not days. And so when it comes to this God-centeredness, Jesus was 
absolutely God-centered. And this is where we need to start. If love for God is the fuel for our love for people, we love, why? Because he first loved us. We love because if we have his love in us, that love is from God, and we don't hoard it to ourselves. We share with others. And in Jesus' teaching consistently, God reigns supreme in all things. Is it a question about taxes? Then render to God what belongs to God and give Caesar whatever the little bit is that belongs to him. In the question of death, oh, whose brother will she be? She married all of them, and when they're all resurrected, is she going to be married to all seven? No, God has the ability to transform not just our bodies, but our relationships. God reigns supreme and towers over the question of death. And when we get to the question of human responsibility, how are we to love our neighbors? We find that the first and greatest commandment is not to love our neighbors. That is like the first commandment, which is to love God with everything that we've got. His wholehearted love for us that was willing not only to create us, but to buy us back through the sacrifice of his son. His wholehearted love for us must not be returned by a half-hearted love on our part. Number two, don't try to divorce what Jesus has wed together. Don't try to divorce what Jesus has wed together. You cannot substitute love for others for love for God. Chances are you're probably better at one than you are at the other. That's just human nature. None of us are good at all things. But you cannot substitute love for others for love for God because in Jesus' value system, a love for God that minimizes love for neighbor is just as reprehensible as a love for neighbor that minimizes love for God. For Jesus, they're reverse sides of the same coin. They go together, and neither ultimately makes sense without the other. And the tragedy is, even with this lawyer who asked the question and commended Jesus for his response, the Pharisees knew the law. They perhaps even approved of the law, appreciated the law. Their heads were definitely full of facts, but their hearts at the end of the day were cold to their obligation to put it into practice. So beware of overvaluing head knowledge. It's important, it's necessary, but it can lead to a dead and decaying orthodoxy. And in light of all these things, Jesus' absolute God-centeredness, our lack of it, our trying to divorce love for God and love for neighbors, we come to our third point. Be grateful that despite our failure to love God and others, that there is a gospel. Friends, listen, if you got this right, you wouldn't need Jesus. If you love God right and you love your neighbor as yourself, man, you got it. But the point is this, we don't do this. And if we're honest with ourselves and how far we fall short of God's ideal, then it's great to hear the good news that there is a forgiveness that is motivated by a love that is far greater than our feeble and impotent love for God or love for others. God's love is always the foundation. It is always prior to our love. It is always supreme and sovereign. God's love for us is always and will for always be greater than our love for God. And for that, we can all give a very hearty amen. Thank you, Jesus, because we need the gospel. And that's why we do what we do. God loves us. But his love is not designed to make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. You can talk to Oprah about that. She'll, she'll work on the warm and fuzzies for you. God's love is designed to make you like him. And when he makes you like him, 
you don't become a hoarder of his grace. You become a sharer with God's people, but certainly with everyone in your community. And friends, as on this day, as we talk about back to school, we don't just note this as a day on the calendar. We note this as an opportunity for service. And so if you find yourself perhaps um, not serving, and let me say this, because I know we have tons of public servants here today. We have teachers, firefighters, policemen. I know the temptation is to go, I serve all week. I'm a pastor. I know it too. Okay? Uh, Serving people. That doesn't free me from the obligation to find a way to pay it back into the the volunteer. I'm going to read with a kid at Northside, not because my church pays me to do it, but because that's one of my obligations as a Christian to volunteer. And so if you find yourself maybe not serving in a way that maybe you need to, here's what's great. God has given you a new day today in which you can choose to follow him more closely or just refuse and keep going the way that you want, and that's not a good situation. So when we think about our ministry of our church to our community, I want you to watch this quick video. I'll say a few words, and then we will sing. When many people think of church, they think of a building that you go to on Sundays or Wednesdays. Some people think of the leaders who run the churches and then pick a church based on which leaders they like the most. Still others think church is a collection of programs that they are a part of, serve in, and attend. They're also told to invite their friends and encouraged to give their money and time to support the work that takes place in the building. The more committed they are, the more time and money they give. Eventually, they are taught how to use their spiritual gifts to build up the church in the programs or the building where the church meets. We believe it's important for the church to gather together regularly and for people to submit to leaders and be trained and equipped by them. And we do believe that we should gather regularly so people can be equipped and built up in Christ. But we also want to send people out into the world more and more. We want them to learn how to use their money to bless people outside of the church. We want them to begin using more and more of their time to serve the city where they live. We want them to use their spiritual gifts, not just so we can benefit, but so that our city can benefit as they use their gifts for the city's good. In all of this, our hope is that we will fill our city with the presence of Christ so that gospel saturation will take place and every man, woman, and child might have an opportunity to both hear and see the good news of Jesus through his people. At the end of the day, every church has the choice to find a way to either perpetuate their own busyness that the world doesn't really care about, or to get outside the walls of the church and to do something that really matters and to make investments that matter for all eternity. Wouldn't you rather be that second kind of church than a church that's so inwardly focused it's forgotten how to do good to the people that are around it? I close with this word from Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles that I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God is saying, I have deported you. I've kicked you out of the promised land. And here's what I have. Here's my word for you. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. 
Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will have prosperity too. Friends, that's what we want to be. We want to be motivated by the name of Jesus enough that we don't just have a good time here inside these walls, but we have a good time everywhere we go in Rock Hill. And I pray that this morning that the name of Jesus will be a motivating power for you to serve, perhaps in a capacity that you've not served before. Would you stand with us as we sing?